Good morning. We're in our second week of a message series on the Old Testament book of Daniel, and I'd encourage you to bring your own Bible with you to church during this series, or use a Bible app on your phone so that you can follow along with the text. As I mentioned last week, there's just too much scripture in each passage for me to read the whole thing. So if you are able to read the passage ahead of time and bring your Bible or Bible app with you to worship, you're going to get a lot more out of it. Today we're in chapter 2 of Daniel, if you'd like to turn there. This is one of the pivotal passages in all of Scripture because it, it helps us to see how God is intimately involved in the affairs of this world and where this world is headed. I got my magic eight ball out this week because I've noticed that there's a whole industry out there of people who are trying to do just that, trying to figure out where the world is headed, trying to predict the future. There are pollsters and stock market analysts and political pundits, Hollywood stars, talk show hosts, bloggers, psychologists, futurists, as well as the stargazers and palm readers. Just a whole bushel of people who make it their business to try and predict what lies ahead for our nation, for our world, or for your personal life. And most of them are kind of predicting fearful doom and gloom, just kind of chaos and calamity. But remembering how accurate they've been in the past, I think this Magic 8-Ball would do just as good a job. So I asked my Magic 8-Ball about the coming year, and you know what the first answer was that pop up, popped up? Reply, hazy, try again later. Now, at least that's an honest answer. You know, we do worry and stress over the future, and I wonder if we have any real idea of how much mental energy and anxiety we put into thinking about our future and what's going to happen next. It's a universal phenomenon. We wish we could predict the future in order to try and control it or change what's coming or at least feel better prepared for it. The mental picture we have of the future is perhaps the number one contributor to our sense of well-being and peace of mind. If you have a bleak view of your future, inevitably, you're going to be gripped by despair and hopelessness. Your mind just kind of spins out all these endless scenarios of what's about going to happen. Uh, not even real problems, but these fantasies problems, problems about what might happen. It cripples your experience of life in the here and now. But if you have a positive view of the future, if you have a positive faith in what God is doing, you're going to be able to live more confidently and have a greater sense of security and peace and hope. Not stress or worry free, but more confidently, more peacefully. And the contrast between these two types of people is on full display here in chapter 2 of Daniel. Last week in chapter 1 we saw how Daniel and his young, three young companions were taken as captives into Babylon in the 6th century B.C., Israel and, and the city of Jerusalem had been conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar took Israel's young men, the cream of the crop, to be kind of brainwashed and turned away from the God of Israel and be trained to serve the gods of Babylon and become advisors to his court. But Daniel and his crew, they don't take the bait. They risk everything by staying true to the Lord. And God honored that commitment. And they ended up excelling in comparison to the young men of Babylon. Chapter 1 ends with this remarkable summary in verse 17. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. The mention of Daniel's special gift with dreams and visions 
uh, kind of foreshadows the drama that's about to begin here in chapter 2. So let's hear chapter 2. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians and enchanters, sorcerers and astrologers, that's better translated Chaldeans, to tell him what he had dreamed. But they came in and stood before the king and he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. And then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty for you. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there is no one on earth who can do what the king asked. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing from any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. So King Nebuchadnezzar is having a hard time sleeping. I guess he didn't get his my pillow for Christmas or something like that. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is a brilliant man. History tells us he was a skilled military leader, an amazing architect, a genius politician. He stepped into being king after the untimely death of his father, Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar was the one who built up the Babylonian army and led them to overthrow the great Assyrian empire. Nabopolassar made Babylonia the dominant power of the Middle East. But Nabopolassar died in 605 B.C. and Nebuchadnezzar then became king. The responsibility to rule this vast kingdom now rested on his shoulders. And while trying to sleep, I'm sure he had questions just running around inside his head. What's going to happen next? What would happen to his empire? I mean, he'd seen how nations and governments would rise and fall. The Egyptian pharaohs were dust. The Assyrians, they'd been wiped out. Now Israel had gone under. What's going to happen to him? What will be his legacy? Will someone come along and overthrow me? I mean, who can I trust? And as he tried to sleep, God revealed things to him in his dreams. Dreams that were so vivid and shocking and intense and alarming, he was unable to sleep. Dreams that deeply troubled his soul. So much so that I'll bet sometimes he was even afraid to go to sleep lest the dreams come again. It's interesting how the Bible tells us how often God uses dreams to kind of interface with people. It's an interesting Bible study to look at all the people that God spoke to through dreams. Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and Solomon and Pharaoh and, and the Apostle Peter and many others. It's not abnormal at all for God to speak to people in dreams in the scriptures. Now, it's important to check everything out against the revealed truth of Scripture 
and the godly wisdom of, of counselors, because it could be, you know, you just had something bad for dinner. But God may speak to you through a dream. Today there are so many reports of people coming to faith in Christ because, because Christ comes to them in a dream. Particularly Muslims who don't have access to the Bible. Christ appears to them in their sleep and then they go out and they seek out some Christian to help them understand who this Christ is. This is very common. It's happening all the time in Muslim countries. God using dreams. I'm not sure what Sigmund Freud or Carl Jung would say about that since they had both had their own philosophies about the meaning of dreams, but it's definitely a pattern in Scripture. Nebuchadnezzar is terrified by his dreams. He could vaguely remember bits and pieces of the nightmares that he had, but he couldn't put them all together, and it frightened him. I mean, has that ever, ever had that feeling you can't really remember what you dreamed? I know I have in some of my weirder dreams. That's Nebuchadnezzar. So he gets all the brain trust of the Babylonian kingdom together to help him unravel this mystery. The text says the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and that word really is Chaldeans. It was a group of people who were known for that skill. These are intellectuals, the natural scientists, the astronomers, astrologers, the magicians, the palm readers, the crystal gazers, the mediums, people who thought that they could talk with the dead or read tea leaves or chicken bones tossed on the ground. People engaged in both sort of the academic pursuit of wisdom, but also the occultists. Because in that day, it was all kind of mixed together. And these are, in fact, the magi, the wise men, three of whom some 600 years later would be led to the infant Jesus because of the legacy of Daniel. And we'll see that later in this book. So the king assembled all the scholarship, all the demonism, all the human wisdom money could buy, all trying to get a hedge on tomorrow. It's uh, Nebuchadnezzar's think tank. And they were ready, believe me. Archaeologists tell us that the Chaldeans were experts at dream interpretation. They had a whole dream reading system based on the principle that dreams and what followed after those dreams were governed by you know, immutable laws. So they cataloged all the dreams that anyone ever had. And, they, and then what happened to that person after that dream. So let's say a guy has a dream about being chased by a lion, and then his life went this way. And another guy had a dream about falling off a cliff, and his life went this way. They cataloged all of these dreams, and then what followed? With all the various permutations and combinations of dreams. So if you have this kind of dream with these different elements in it, that means your life is going to go this direction. Archaeologists have actually found these Chaldeans' massive libraries of their dream manuals on cuneiform tablets. So all Nebuchadnezzar had to do was to tell them the details and they'd go right to their dream library, sift through all the stacks of cuneiform tablets, and come back with the right answer. But King Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't or couldn't tell them the details of his dream. I mean, they could do some good stuff with their bag of tricks, but only if they knew the dream. And he says, no. You tell me the dream, too. I think Nebuchadnezzar had been watching how these advisors had served his father and thought it was all a con. Nebuchadnezzar was a cynic. He realized he was being had. You say you speak for the gods. Okay, let's see if you can pull this off. And so he puts on a test on his court wise men to see if they were really worth anything. When it comes with a pretty big price tag, he says in verse 5, if you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. This was not hyperbole. 
he was not exaggerating. He really would have them literally cut into small pieces. And literally what it says here is that he would turn their homes into latrines. I mean, that's how you really humiliate somebody. You kill them, tear down their house, and then you build a, a public outhouse on that same spot. So the Magi, the Chaldeans, they face this impossible dilemma. There's no way they're going to come up with a dream because they don't have any access to the spiritual world. They're going to be exposed as hucksters and charlatans, and so they plead for time, stalling, hoping maybe this is just a passing fad and that the king will sometime change his mind. You see, Nebuchadnezzar has lost faith in his own system. And let me say, I think that's what we say happening in our world today. People who have put their trust in a human system, political party, cause, a leader, and then it comes up short, gets exposed, the con gets revealed, it fails. That implosion of belief then becomes a reason for their feelings of hopelessness and cynicism, why they just want to opt out of everything. Folks, if we put our trust in human systems, they are always going to come up short at some point because they are human institutions. Even churches are human institutions. The true spiritual body of Christ is there in there somewhere, but churches, denominations, even independent churches are all human institutions and they will come up short. So if you put your full trust in any of them, you are going to be hugely disappointed. The only one who deserves that kind of trust is the Lord Jesus. Psalm 20 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So then the Chaldeans say the wisest thing that they ever said. Verse 10. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has ever asked any such thing from a magician, an enchanter, or a Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is, too diff is difficult. And no one uh, can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with man. This is the truest thing that they ever said. They basically admit that they are frauds because they know such things would require a divine revelation, and they don't have it. And let me say, if you are at, in any way involved with horoscopes or reading crystals or Ouija boards or going to palm readers like the lady across the street or into Reiki, you, you need to stop that today. All those things are not from God, and they are portals to demonic activity. They're not just innocent fun. They're offensive to God, and you can't do that stuff and follow Christ. The Magi are right when they say no one on earth can reveal the king's matter. They tell him he's being unreasonable to ask because no human can do it. They're admitting that there are limits to their con. They could not read Nebuchadnezzar's mind. The only place to get that kind of info is a spiritual source. But the king is so angry he doesn't grant them what they want. Instead he orders his royal executioner Arioch to kill all the wise men of Babylon. And that's where Daniel and his friends get swept up in the net. They're just apprentices. They've just completed their training. The ink isn't even dry on their diplomas. They don't, know, they don't, they don't follow the ways of the sorcerers and the Chaldeans, but it's guilt by association. And we begin to see how God uses this situation to set up Daniel as a man for a crisis. Verses 14 through 30, those detail his response. And what we see is that when everyone else is freaking out, Daniel maintains his composure. You know, they say that a crisis doesn't build character, a crisis reveals character. 
And that's true here. Everyone else was in a state of panic except Daniel. He was calm and composed because he had this amazing confidence in God. He knew, he knew in the deepest recesses of his heart that his life was guided by a sovereign God. That's where his confidence came from. You know, life is chaotic. And when it is, it's important to pray and to ask God for composure. To pray and ask God to help you keep your cool. And he will. It's amazing what can happen when you pause and pray. And then invite God into your situation. Just pause and pray and then get on with it. The Lord will be right there with you. So Daniel goes to the king through the king's execution of verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone to put, out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. And he asked the king's officer, why is the decree of the king so urgent? You see, Daniel again shows that respectful boldness that we saw in chapter 1. Daniel had this ability to talk with people, to calm them down, to get them off the edge. What's the hurry, Arioch? Tell me about this. Daniel's also courageous. He's a teenager just out of Magi school, a Hebrew, a foreigner. And yet he's confident enough to go before King Nebuchadnezzar, who was still just kind of foaming at the mouth. Verse 16, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Now here's an amazing thing that John MacArthur points out about this passage. What was the one thing the Magi asked for? Time. And what was the one thing Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't give them? Time. Well, what's the one thing that uh, Daniel asked for? Time. And what's the one thing Nebuchadnezzar gives him? Time. I mean, it's a total reversal. What's different about Daniel's request is that he had God's favor. And he had this respectful boldness in his approach. Calm in a crisis. Like the Apostle Paul in Acts 27 when the ship he was on was sinking. And he calmly says, we're going to lose the boat, but we're all going to make it. Not one life in this boat will be lost. Calm because of his confidence in God. But Daniel's not alone in this. In verse 17, he goes to his buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and tells them what's going on. And then verse 18, and told them to seek the mercy, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel knows he doesn't have any power. He's just a channel for God's grace. And so together they strike a dependent posture. They fall on their knees and they pray. You can't receive from the Lord without prayer. And it's so great to be able to take your troubles to God with your band of brothers or your circle of sisters. To pray like Jesus said, two or three gathered in his name. They went to the God of heaven. The Babylonians, they studied all the stars of heaven, but they didn't know the God of heaven. They prayed, and in verse 19, and this is where I'll close today. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And then Daniel blessed the God of heaven, and he breaks into this great poem or this psalm of praise starting in verse 20. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings, raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. You see, Daniel and his friends were not stuck with Babylonian fatalism. They knew there was a loving and sovereign God so they could be composed in a time of crisis. They could be courageous in the face of danger, all because they had communion 
with their God. And that led to compassion. Verse 24, Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to them, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret the dream for him. Daniel is going before the king, and we're going to look at that uh, uh, a little bit as an interpretation of the dream next week. But as he goes before the king, he acts to spare the lives of all the magi, all the Chaldeans. He didn't have to do that. In fact, it would have, been, it would have seemed just to go ahead and have them executed. Would have made his life a whole lot easier, especially because they were all in the service of these false pagan gods. and They were actually opposed to the God of Israel. They were as lost and as far away from God as you can get, friends, into demonism and everything else. They were God's enemies. He would have been perfectly just in having them killed, but instead he has compassion. And again, Daniel's a powerful example for us on how to live in a world that doesn't honor the Lord. Composure, courage, communion with God, and then compassion for God's opposition. Compassion for God's opposition. Do you have compassion for those who have set themselves up against God's word? Think about that this week. Compassion for God's opposition. Do you have compassion for them or do you just get angry? Think about that this week. I know that's something that I need to work on. Jesus said something about love your enemies, didn't he? Think about that. What we are learning from Daniel is that the mightiest empires are all temporary. That God is at work in the events of the world and history is not determined by earthly rulers, but by the hand of God. And in the midst of all that, we are to lean into Christ and find our security and our hope in Him. We find our strength in our communion with God. He gives us composure in a crisis, the ability to live with courage, respectful boldness, and compassion. We don't have to live in fear when we think about the future like Nebuchadnezzar did. Praise imparts power. So let's live Daniel style. Let's praise God this week for who he is and what he's going to do in your life. Ask him to act, to give you wisdom, to give you boldness and courage. Ask him to use you to advance his kingdom. Activate the power of of prayer and praise and then step out confidently in the path he lays before you. Trusting him to do work in ways only he can. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the composure, the courage, the communion, the compassion of Daniel, Lord, in the midst of a crisis. And Lord, we will face difficult circumstances, maybe even this week, and we will just pray, Lord, that we'd be able to to imitate and emulate the example of Daniel, to be able to trust confidently in you and to find people to pray with us and for us that we could pray for others, too, who are going through a crisis. And together, Lord, we would give you praise that you are the God of all the heavens. And you're the God who gives wisdom and understanding and helps us take steps of faith each and every day. We thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.